Meanwhile, Bobby Valentine's Texas Rangers were contributing to baseball's streakiest season by streaking through May. Pitch to Gonzalez, a high drive, deep left center, goodbye! Now the Rangers on a roll that we have not seen for a while. That makes it a 10-5 Ranger lead in a five-run 11th inning. I'm not laughing at anything particular, it just strikes me as ridiculous how hot this team is. And Munoz goes down swinging, and baseball's hottest team has made it 14 in a row. The streak ended, but Julio Franco was just getting warmed up. And though the team would later fade, Franco would go on to hit 341 and win the batting crown. How great is that? Mel Allen. Yeah, that was from a, I think it was 1991, a video yearbook. One of those uh, This Week in Baseball VHS copies from 1991 when Bobby Valentine was the manager of the Texas Rangers who went on to win 14 games in a row. Had a lot of good young talent. And Julio Franco, who I think is in his late hundreds, is still playing right now. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome on in to the Check Your Brain podcast. I appreciate you folks for uh, listening to this. And uh, I hope you've subscribed to the free version, which comes out every Wednesday. And if you want a little bit more, uh, because this version, the free version, comes out on iHeart uh, Media and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Alexa, Google Play, all of those different podcasts, wherever you get your finer podcasts. This podcast comes out for free Wednesdays. However, I also do additional podcasts, and you have early access to guests and other features that I have on my Patreon. So if you want to subscribe for as little as $5 a month at patreon.com slash Tony Mazur, T-O-N-Y-M-A-Z-U-R, you get more of my rants and raves and uh, talking about whether it's political stuff, old sports stuff, uh, comedy, radio, any one of those subjects you get an opportunity to check out on my Patreon. Five bucks a month, the Check Your Brain podcast at patreon.com slash Tony Mazur. All right, enough of the promotion for me. Let's talk about Bobby Valentine's promotion because he is my guest on the podcast and, it's, and he has a new book out. It's called Valentine's Way, My Adventurous Life and Times. And I got a chance to uh, talk to Bobby Valentine about yeah, basically everything in his career from coaching that team that uh, you just heard there in the Texas Rangers and a lot of those young names to he went overseas and then eventually he uh, resurfaces as the manager of the Mets for those very interesting times back in the late 90s, early 2000s, helping lead them to the World Series against the Yankees in 2000. Yes, I asked about the disguise and the mustache when he got kicked out of the game. So you hear that towards the end of the interview if you want to check that out. Uh, and uh, his relationship and being an early pioneer with sabermetrics and launch angle and all that stuff that he was bringing up as early as the uh, and using tape, using game tape in the 1980s that people hadn't heard about sabermetrics until now it seems like like five or six years ago and he was using them back in the 80s when he was with Texas. So we got into talking a lot about that and uh, it was really neat uh, getting a chance to talk to Bobby Valentine, uh, somebody that has basically been a manager and a fixture in my life uh, uh, in watching baseball. So his book is uh, called Valentine's Way, My Adventurous Life and Times. And in the book, he also talks about his four to five decades in baseball, his relationships and uh, memorable moments that he's had with guys like Joe Torre, Steinbrenner, David Ortiz, Dustin Pedroia, Ichiro, Tom Seaver, and Nolan Ryan, who he not only managed with Texas, but he also played with. 
back in the day as well when he was with the California Angels. So it's a fun interview. Got a chance to talk to Bobby Valentine. I hope you enjoy it. But in the meantime, I mentioned that disguise that he had where he was incognito in the dugout. Here's a little taste of that and then my interview with Bobby V. And now Ricky leads off the bottom of the 13th against Graham Lloyd and takes a strike. So it'll be Henderson, Alfonso. And remember now, the pitcher is in the third slot with John Olerud having been replaced as part of the double switch. Bobby Valentine, the dugout. Wait. Give me that again. Well, Bobby was thrown out on that catcher's interference call, and he's gone incognito. Sorry, Skip, we got you. This is Tony Mazur, and getting an, op an opportunity to talk to somebody that I've been a fan of for many years, uh, I know you folks have. He's been a very colorful personality in dugouts, whether he's been in Texas, whether he's been in New York. He's been all over the place. Uh, he was a player, he's a manager. Uh, he's been a commentator. He's ran for political office. Uh, he's a fantasy baseball guru. He's been all over the place. And he has a new book out, and it's called Valentine's Way, My uh, Adventurous Life and Times. Uh, and it's Bobby Valentine. And Bobby, good to have you on, and uh, appreciate you jumping on here with us. Thank you, Tony. Yeah, um, as you mentioned, uh, I've done a lot of things, and I think, uh, you know, they're depicted in this book and in a kind of fun fashion. I just tell the story as I remember it, and um, hopefully your listeners will enjoy it. Yeah, it is on Amazon.com, and um, it, it deals with uh, 50 years of fun, fun, fun. And boy, did you have fun. I mean, you did a lot in your career at being the manager of the Texas Rangers, the Mets. And one thing about that I've always thought of a Bobby Valentine coach team, and, and, and taking away the, the, that season with the Red Sox, you were the guy that was the, you were kind of like how I looked at Buck Showalter as a manager that can turn around a very dormant team and bring them to respectability. And in fact, you kind of did that in Boston too because they won the World Series the next year. But you took a Rangers team that hadn't finished higher than second place a couple of times in their existence. You take a Mets team that was a national joke uh, in the early 90s and you bring them to the World Series within a couple of years. I mean, you really have been one of those guys that you've turned around these franchises that just seem to be dead and buried. Well, thanks, Tony. Yeah, and I guess that's why I was the first non-Japanese manager ever in the history of Japanese baseball to go to their major leagues and manage there and uh, had a team that uh, hadn't been in the top division in 33 years and we wound up um, yeah, winning a championship and more. So yeah, it, it's been fun. I always needed good coaching, good players, good support. I had it often and uh, when I did, I talked about it in the book and when I didn't, I talked about it in the book and I think that's what makes life uh, so interesting. That was what's interesting about the uh, Texas Rangers years and you were there for a while. You, you replaced Doug Rader who was also a pretty good manager in his own right, but you took that team to a new level. You had a, a nice mix of guys like Pete O'Brien and Charlie Huff, but you were also in charge of a lot of those young stars that by the 1990s, these were household names, guys like uh, Yvonne Rodriguez, Ruben Sierra, Juan Gonzalez, Kevin Brown, all, Sammy Sosa came up through the organization, and you were responsible for molding them into star players. Talk a little bit about them. Well, I, I did have a lot of those guys, you know, Pedro Rodriguez as an 18-year-old and Ruben Sierra as a 19-year-old. Juan Gonzalez is a 19-year-old. Yeah, they were probably in the big leagues before their time. 
but the ownership and, and Tom Greed, the great general manager that I worked under there, um, believed that it was the best place to develop them. And, and they developed, and they developed uh, rather rather well. I thought that they all could have been Hall of Famers, as a matter of fact. Um, also had the, the uh, privilege uh, of managing Nolan Ryan after playing with Nolan <laughs> Ryan in the early 70s. Then I got to manage him. Uh, there in the late 80s, and when people thought he was through, all he did was um, threw his sixth no-hitter, his seventh no-hitter, his uh, 5,000 strikeout game, and his 300th win all in a Texas Ranger uniform, and uh, I was happy to uh, watch all of those things happen. And you really helped put them on the map, and you see guys like somebody like Juan Gonzalez that was a, a just a star in the making, and you, you, like you knew it, and you put him out there, and like you said, these – because I remember uh, Ivan Rodriguez, he was brought up to the major leagues, uh, I, I believe, on his wedding day. You guys brought him to Chicago on his wedding day, and what does he do? He throws out like two or three runners trying to steal second base. They're like, oh, no, this this kid is a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, he was really special as a young guy. And, uh, you know, it, it was regrettable that we, we didn't have a real stadium. You know, part of my whole gig uh, down there was uh, – trying to make a minor league franchise, a major league franchise. You know, we played in that old double-A stadium that was converted. And, uh, you know, the Texas Rangers were known as guys on horses with big hats and guns. And instead we uh, had to, you know, have the populace understand there was also a baseball team, another sport that could be played in Texas other than football. So uh, there is a whole process, not only of developing players, but in changing the perception of of a franchise in a uh, in a real football community. I think we succeeded in that. You know, uh, uh, George W. Bush headed up a group that uh, wound up buying the franchise while I was there, uh, moved it into a brand new stadium, which now. There's no longer a new stadium. It's an old stadium, and they moved into a new stadium across the street from it. So, um, you know, to, to be at the, the start of something or the turnaround uh, time with a uh, business or with a franchise is always very exciting, and that's how it was there in Texas. And then, so, you know, things kind of wear down. Uh, 1992, you end up moving on, and you go back overseas, and – it seemed like over time that you really learned to become a better manager uh, by managing. It's a different style of baseball uh, across the Pacific, and it really seemed that by the time you ended up coming back to Norfolk and eventually the Mets, that it was like, oh, this is a different Bobby Valentine than we, we saw down in Arlington. Well, a little older maybe, but uh, remember, <laughs> you know, in, in 85 we were first dealing with uh, ESPN that was covering sports on a 24-hour basis. We were um, – digitizing players, you know, to understand what really happens when they swing and they throw and they run so that uh, the old uh, ideas of swinging down or, or swinging your arm, if you're a pitcher, went out, went out the, um, the window. But we were up against the, the old school baseball. We were, we were trying to try to change things not only in the perception of the fans, but also in the reality of playing the game, of how 
how a swing should be that finally now it's almost universal that people understand that you swing up when you swing you you don't swing down and the only reason you do that is not to create a launch angle as they talk about today is because the laws of physics prohibit you from doing anything but swinging up at the ball uh that the head of the bat always has to be below the hands when the bat barrel of the bat's coming forward uh, and and you know we were met with a lot of resistance the idea of a pitch count and and saving pitchers uh arms and and resting players when they needed to be rested were all very foreign you know we were up against cal ripken playing every inning of every game we were up against you know, the the old uh, school mentality that if you throw more, you'll be able to pitch more. And, and then, of course, the hitting philosophies, as well as uh, the viewing. You know, when I got there, Tony, the owner was dead set against having our home games on television. He thought it would keep the fans away from the stands. Mm. And I had to make a presentation to him to show him. Matter of fact, the game in, in Cleveland was what... I put the VCR in, and I showed him how when the Rangers were playing in Cleveland and the aforementioned Pete O'Brien hit a home run, that there was no excitement with him hitting the home run because it was in Cleveland. And then I showed, I think it was Andre Dawson hitting a home run for the home team. Well, uh, that might be wrong, but something like that. And when uh, the home team hit the home run, all the fans were cheering and standing. And I tried to say, and I told Eddie Childs, the owner then, that we need to have our home games on TV. So when they're watching at home, they wish that they were at the stadium. But that's the kind of change that had to take place. And it was fun dealing with change. What a concept that is. Gee, wouldn't you think you want more of your audience watching you? <laughs> My goodness. It's just an interesting, it was an interesting thing. Matter of fact, at the time, I think uh, the Dodgers uh, might have been the only team that wasn't, other than us, uh, showing their home games on television. I Think back in '85. That's amazing. Uh, or maybe they were the only one showing their home games. I, I forget how it worked, but it was it was something like that. But then, <laughs> so then after the Rangers, you you end up going to the Mets just a few years later, and you're cleaning up the mess of the Mets. They were well, they they were called the worst team that money can buy, and the, the days of Brett Saberhagen, the first round of Bobby Bonilla, and a bunch of other uh, Vince Coleman, and a lot of players that just didn't really pan out. So you come kind of take over and mop up the mess after Dallas Green. And then all of a sudden, 1997, 98, you're 88 and 74. Then you go into 99, you're almost uh, winning 100 games and same in 2000. And one thing that a lot of people remember about those years, not just Mike Piazza, and we'll get into talking about Mike Piazza, but that infield was the greatest infield I'd ever seen. You had Olerud at first. Alfonso, you had either Mike Bordick or Ray Ordonez. You had Robin Ventura. I mean, nothing got by that infield. Yeah, 1999, that was with Ordonez at shorts full-time. Um, and he was spectacular, and everybody else was, was anything but spectacular. They were steady, and uh, the guy at first, Olerud, was the guy who had and no one ever understood this, but uh, I always said he had the best range of any first baseman. And his 
great range was the range when he was at the bag catching throws because he was six feet five and he understood how to reach out to the outfield and move his feet properly on the base to get the ball that was thrown furthest from him on the outfield side as well as on the home plate side as well as balls that were high and as well as balls that were low so uh, I think we made the fewest errors uh, because not only because everybody else, uh, you know, Ventura and, and Alfonso and, and Ordonius are all really good, but also because uh, Olerud is great. And a lot of those those just role players. Hey, you, you talk about in something like basketball, you talk about a role player who kind of has a nice appearance and, you know, every so often comes off the bench and scores, uh, you know, a couple of baskets or a, big, a clutch three-pointer. But in baseball, it seemed like that, those Mets teams had a lot of unsung heroes, that you had your Piazzas, you had your uh, Ola Roots, like you mentioned, and Ray Ordonez making plays. But every so often, you had a Daryl Hamilton. You had a Todd Pratt hits that walk-off home run off Matt Manti. You had uh, Benny Agbayani, another walk-off home run. These were guys that just... They didn't necessarily work on other teams when they were not playing for this Mets team, but it just the cohesiveness just kind of really brought you guys together. Yeah, I think it was cohesiveness and it was really good coaching, you know, and, and uh, you know, we used uh, analytics in, in, in those days, you know. I mean, I I was criticized more uh, for for something I did than any other manager I did it more than any other manager, and I was criticized more than any other manager, and that was I used multiple lineups. I was using 100 lineups in those days, and people you know, were saying it was crazy that you couldn't uh, use multiple lineups. You had to have a steady lineup that you threw out there every day, but I was using the pitching matchups on the other teams, the bullpen matchups against our pinch hitters even at times and to make out a lineup. And and uh, the world of baseball couldn't understand what I was doing. And, um, you know, now it's now, once again, it's commonplace. Do you feel vindicated a little bit that you were kind of the pioneer that brought that to people's attentions? Well, I don't, uh, yeah, I like to think that. I think that, you know, pioneers get shot at a lot. You're out in front and, uh, you know, to be out in front of, um, uh, of things that, you know, especially baseball, because baseball is such a standard in America that, uh, you know, you, you weren't supposed to change a thing. This is what my grandfather said, and therefore that's the way it is. Um, you know, that uh, I, I, it was met with a lot of, a lot of uh, confusion. Matter of fact, I, I, had, uh, I hired Tom House, who was a Ph.D. from uh, Southern California University, also a pitcher. He was the guy that caught... Hank Aaron's home run ball when Hank Aaron hit his number 715 in Atlanta. He was in the bullpen for the Atlanta Braves, but uh, he also was a real clever guy, real smart guy, and together we wanted to figure stuff out, not just take for granted what it was. And one of the things that that he did before games was uh, he had pitchers throwing uh, footballs to uh, test their strength in their shoulder and to make sure their arm got into the right slot so they're throwing a spiral. And it was met with such disapproval. It was unbelievable. There had to be an article every week about the stupidity of throwing a football on a baseball field. And then in 2000, 
you know, 15 years or however many years later it was, I guess it was uh, 15 years later, uh, we're in a World Series against the Yankees, and I look out on the field, and there's Roger Clemens throwing the football, warming up before his start. So, uh, you know, vindication is one of those things that uh, you, you take to heart. And uh, all of the criticizing, you know, when we would when we would video other teams, and, and uh, I, I had a choice between buying a satellite dish and having a guy record games in a little closet in our clubhouse or have an advanced scout sitting in stands sending in written handwritten reports to me before the game uh, I chose to do the video scouting and to have someone record the Cleveland Indians when they were playing the Chicago White Sox so that I could see what they looked like before we went to play the Cleveland Indians in the next series and that was met with such disapproval that I was uh, this devil trying to change things. And now it's uh, so commonplace in the game, I have to laugh. And, and well, and then you get to that point where, and then Roger Clemens, of course, uh, not only throwing a football, but throwing partially broken bat at your player. <laughs> uh, the, quite a contentious World Series, but after all those years of being in Major League Baseball and, you know, Bad teams, good teams, mediocre teams. You finally get there. 99, you're so close. You're always being the bridesmaid, never the bride in the uh, NL East because of the Braves' stranglehold on the on that division. You finally make it in 2000. What <clears throat> what was it like that first game, just going out there and going, I am managing a World Series team right now? Well, I don't know if it was that feeling other than uh... – rather than that it was we were actually playing the New York Yankees in the World Series. You know, uh, I got to New York in 96, and the Yankees won their first of many World Series, said that run that they were having in 96. And I had to live in the shadow not only of the Yankees, where in 97 we started playing interleague play. That was really fun. And by 99, we were playing double series of interleague play against the Yankees. But uh, here, this world championship team, a team who had 14 straight World Series wins, we were going to be matched up against uh, in the World Series. So it was really exciting. Uh, The city was electric. Uh, The nation was watching, of course, but... uh, for the for the fans of baseball in the in the tri-state area, I I think that it was unparalleled with excitement, and um, that that was the feeling about being there. Yeah, it just it just ran into a buzzsaw, just like a lot of teams did in the in the '90s. There were really good teams, whether it was the Mariners, the Indians, the Baltimore Orioles. That uh, your old Texas Rangers uh, faced them a number of times, just couldn't get by the Yankees, and neither could Atlanta, and neither could could the Mets. Unfortunately, it was just a it's a tough time. A couple more questions. I know we're pressed for time, and you got to go um, go on to other interviews. But I, I I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the disguise, about the mustache. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, it's uh, it was it's well, one of the yeah, great. That's one of the things that uh, has allowed me to transcend the last couple generations of baseball fans. Um, you know, people. Young people have no idea uh, that I ever wore the costume other than the costume that I wore when I came back after being ejected. But I go into great detail in, in the book. It, it had a lot of backstory to it. Uh, but I did um, 
get thrown out of the game. I did come back into the dugout. I was supposedly going to be there for, uh, you know, a couple minutes. It was extra innings. Let's just get this game over with. Let me shepherd my team to another victory. Uh, I was down kind of hiding in the, in the runway on the steps of the dugout. And Oral Hershiser, who was uh, on the team at the time, was supposed to be uh, guarding me from the umpires. So the umpires couldn't see me standing behind Oral, but uh, we didn't realize there was a TV camera uh, over the third base um, bag in the second deck that had a pretty good view over Oral's shoulder right to my face. And uh, that turned up on TV. Uh, the umpires never saw it until after the game when I was on the field shaking hands with uh, people. But because it was on TV, it became quite the story and it became quite the fine. It became almost the end of my career. And as it turned out, it, it, it uh, did not. And I lived to tell. It was so funny because just the other day when we were recording this, DK Metcalf for the Seattle Seahawks tried re-entering the game at the at the end when he was ejected and my wife and I were watching this going boy he's trying to pull a Bobby Valentine on us <laughs> yeah he just didn't have a different uniform on you yeah. know hey, he didn't have the mustache he's got to get them you got to get the mustache, the mustache. Uh, different costume he needed a different costume yeah last thing I want to ask you and by the way the book uh, Valentine's Way my adventurous life and times it's available now on uh, Amazon you should go get it so uh, it 50-plus years in baseball. The last thing I wanted to ask you, because we lost him almost a year ago, is your relationship with Tommy Lasorda, who is a baseball lifer, and you and him had been friends for so many years. Just to talk about just coming up through the Dodgers and uh, and getting to know Tommy and, and where he ended up becoming and just how your relationship has been with him over the years up until his passing about a year ago. Well, yeah. You know, I, I was being recruited to the University of Southern California, and he was a out uh, for the Dodgers and uh, actually I was being recruited to play football at USC and, and I went to a baseball game while I was there. He was watching the baseball game. He came over to me and introduced himself to me as a scout and a few months later I was drafted number one by the Dodgers and went to from Stanford, Connecticut to Ogden, Utah to their rookie league team. When I got off the plane, the guy that met me in the airport was the rookie league manager uh, Tommy Lasorda. And so we drove back uh, from the airport to the hotel and a wonderful lifetime relationship of uh, over 50 years was established where I got to play for him in rookie ball in Dominican Republic in Venezuela and in AAA. But I got to the big leagues before he did. So I, I was waiting for him in a Dodger uniform for a couple of years while he was still managing at AAA, and by the time everything I had to say and do was heard by all the people who needed to hear it, I got traded to the California Angels, and the year that I got traded, Tommy then came to the big leagues as a third base coach, but we remained friends over the years. I was everywhere he was. He was everywhere I was. I got to meet, uh, you know, backstage with Sinatra and... Uh, press conferences with presidents at the White House uh, alongside of Tommy and his his friendship and and his mentorship um, uh, was was everything to me in my life. 
what a career you've had and uh, i mean it's 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 still going people love hearing the stories uh, whether it's the playing career the mustache and everything i mean not too bad from a kid from uh, stanford connecticut huh yeah i guess it's not too bad stanford connecticut the place now that i'm 71 years old i just got through running for mayor of my hometown as an unaffiliated candidate i built my entire uh, campaign from scratch and uh, wound up getting 14,000 votes of the 28,800 votes that were cast and um, had the absentee ballots kind of wipe me out and uh, lose by by 800 votes to a to a young uh, 35 year old Democratic um, uh, candidate from um, well who grew up right next door to my own town so. Um, it, it, it was a wonderful experience, that's for sure. And um, one well, we'll be in the next book, that's for sure. But uh, didn't quite make this one. Well, I'm looking forward to that book. That should be interesting. The the life and times of Bobby Valentine after the playing career. I, I got the baseball version. Now I want to hear the political and everything else, and your uh, more of your insight. Bobby, thanks so much for joining us here. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and good luck with the book. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure everyone's going to really love it, and. It's uh, just just some of some of the great stories and a lot of the anecdotes over the years. You've I mean you've got a million stories. I don't know. I think you might need about five more books to fit all these in. Thanks, Tony. Good talking to you. It's been a fun fun ride, and I think people really enjoy the book. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bobby. I appreciate it. Well, the debate is over. The second presidential debate, and we flash back. Bobby Valentine, the Rangers manager, 1985 to 1992. He's a good manager. He's done a lot for this community. But having said that, we were concerned about this pennant race, the 1992 pennant race getting away from us. And so we decided to make this change in the hopes that the Texas Rangers will be a contender come September. We understand in the whole process of equal time, we tried to find Al Gore firing a major league manager but just couldn't come up with that thing.